Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric, and joining us on Double Feature to listen to a long string of dark wave references nobody understands in celebration of Cure, Michael Kester. Well, we're not even going to reference the Zodiac Killer or anything? Yes, Ted Cruz. We covered this a couple years ago on the show, extensively, I believe. You can find the back catalog, patreon.com forward slash double feature. That movie where Sean Penn looks like Robert Smith, inexplicably, that's on there. <laughs> a whole year complaining about Ted Cruz, that's on there. Mandatory references are all out here. We're not doing David Lynch's Duran Duran concert film on the show today. We're doing the film Cure and Zodiac. That's all I got. That's the whole... I got a couple songs, actually. I got a couple. I'm not going to do like... A, I could do photos of you. There's a lot of avenues to go here, but I... I feel like I have to save my uh, my The Cure references in the same satchel as the Nine Inch Nails references for the rest of this year of the show. So I won't blow them all in one go here. I mean, if you don't blow them here, I don't know when they're going to be relevant. <laughs> it's, hey, it's not relevant on this show, so why, you know, why wait? <laughs> I guess, yeah. <sighs> this does also bring back, I know, one of your favorite people, uh, David Fincher, film people. I don't know about human people. That's on you. Um, how have we covered? Is this the last, the last remaining Fincher? I think we've skipped. Mm. We've done Alien Three. Mm-hmm. We've done Seven. We've done The Game. Yeah. Uh, Fight Club. We haven't done Panic Room. So there's one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Zodiac is right. There's a gap for a couple of years, but Zodiac is right after Panic Room. Really. Yeah, yeah, because then it's Benjamin Button right after that. Um, Social Network, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and then we start getting into the TV, House of Cards. Gone Girl, Gone Girl's in there. Uh, Gone Girl, probably my favorite one. Yes, that's right, Gone Girl. Gone Girl's one of my favorites, too. And then, of course, we did uh, we did Mank. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. And if you want us to do Mindhunter, just uh, stay tuned on this show because, you know, <laughs> really getting the precursor to that here. Okay, so I mean, I feel like on a long enough timeline, we should just, I mean, fuck it, we should just get all of those on here anyway. Well, and if we wanted to, although it's a whole fucking bag of worms, girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I feel like in, in historically, we don't have a very good track record for trilogies. Um, how many people, do people get killed a lot? Can we maybe sneak it in under the guise of that? Well, it is in Killapalooza territory because there's the three originals, one American remake, and then one non-sequitur American, we don't know why we made this. <laughs> so that kind of sounds like a Killapalooza to me. I mean, I guess if, as long as people are killing, there could, there's, if there's a killing, it must be a Palooza. Right, right. That's really <laughs> what we're missing. We need a new Killapalooza anyway. I suppose without further ado, anyway, forget all of this. Um, so if you want to understand anything we've talked about today, things like the words Killapalooza, things like David Venture's back catalog, even things like photos of you, Eric's extremely double-veiled obscure cure reference, we have a Patreon for that. It's patreon.com forward slash double feature. You just go to, uh, to that website 
you keep our show alive by giving us a little bit of money. And um, there's a myriad of options for what you can accomplish by going to patreon.com forward slash double feature. But the the primary thing is you get to keep our show alive. We get to come back next week, um, which blessing or curse it, it at this point, it's hard to say. But uh, yeah, head over there and you can executive produce the show. But most importantly, and in most reference to what's going on right now, uh, back catalog, you can go back and listen to 14 fucking years of double feature. I think more importantly, uh, at least now that we've already mentioned the Patreon, we can talk about today's theme. We have a theme. That's like the whole point. Oh, what is the theme today? <laughs> I, I think to... I think today's theme, um, the the overarching theme. Well, obviously we have we have serial killer theme, but I think generally, really, what we're looking at is two movies that deal with how the that deal with the 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 nonviolent victims of serial killers. So you have the 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 people whose lives are are devoted and ultimately lost sure by obsessing over the the two people uh you know one is more famous and realer right yeah than the other yeah i think ultimately you're you're looking at the people whose lives are destroyed by these serial killers but not the people whose lives are literally destroyed i think we're talking about the michelle the michelle mcnamara's of it all sure but I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it ends. Uh, I, I, I mean, I know how. I know how the movies end, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, we're just watching it live <laughs> as we record the episode. Um, I got a secondary theme. It's coming. You'll see. I don't want to spoil anything yet. We'll spoil the movies when we get to them. But uh, yeah, I think there's something else kind of going on with these movies, uh, and that's all I want to say. Why don't we start with Cure? Because I think I've made so many dumb '80s jokes that no one even knows what movie we're doing. Yeah, I'm I'm lost in a forest of Cure references at oh this point. Oh my god! <laughs> Love cats. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I I've really I've hit the bottom of the barrel. There's just nothing else in there. Yeah, you know, there's um the way I I wanted to approach Cure. It's a, uh, you know, it's a crime film. It's a murder film. It is a Kiyoshi Kurosawa film. It's a movie, though, that I feel like when people see it, you know, it's it's definitely among the, the kind of class of um, people are looking up Cure Ending Explained, banging that into their mm-hmm. search engine when they walk out of the movie. Yeah. I was going to say out of the theater. I got to see this in a fucking movie theater. Ooh, just a little movie theater flex on the show. <laughs> Packed again. I don't know what the hell's wrong with people in New York. They're all they're selling out Cure on a, a Wednesday midnight show. I don't know what the fuck's going on. Maybe they thought it was the uh, the band. But yeah, I, I notice a lot of people online really have a lot of confusion around this. Mm-hmm. And I think this happens with a lot of movies. You know, if a movie has kind of an ambiguous ending or. Uh, this this movie doesn't explicitly state a lot of what's going on and kind of plays with, I don't know, metaphysical elements or whatever you want to call them. So if people are walking away from this and sort of going, well, what the fuck happened there? I mean, um, we've had this, this... Look, man, movies are for everyone. <laughs> I want to go into this film with an intentional ignorance and really talk about when you and I see something... Mm-hmm. And we kind of scratched our heads at it. 
What are the tools to sort of decipher it? How do you break it down? How do you start tugging at what happened there? And I think it all begins with the log line. Oh, God. The one-sentence synopsis of what the fuck even is this movie. Let's see if we can agree what we just watched. So I think the I think Cure is about um, a mysterious series of um, murders that are connected in in being completely random and it's about the uh the detectives who are trying to piece together why all of these people are ostensibly randomly murdering uh strangers people around them yeah so why uh why are all these people out there committing these murders Mm -hmm. and as we start to unpack that mystery we're questioning suspects it seems that nobody has any malice towards the people they're killing. There are a lot of memory right, issues. Right, it's like a Charles Manson type well, Yeah, thing. well, I mean, that's it, right? We eventually, all right, I'm going to try this one time. Kenichi Takabi, I'm going to just, look, I gave up my one shot. I'm going to call him the protagonist of the movie from now on because if I get it wrong, it's going to be cringy for all the people who can pronounce it every time <laughs> they hear me give it a shot. So It was cringy for me the first time. So yeah, our our protagonist who is trying to make sense of this string of murders starts to see the common thread that it's uh, this one guy, they bring him in, they question him, and this dude, uh, who I'll probably slip up and just call the killer, you know, you you mentioned Mm -hmm. Manson. I mean, it's very like he's influencing other people. We think, however the fuck he would do that, to go out and commit murders. He seems to be the common link. So we're kind of on the same page so far. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop down and talk about this guy because this is really where I think a lot of the magic of the movie is. I love watching this dude in a room and trying to get, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of great movie psychopaths throughout the years mm-hmm. from serial killers to all kinds of memorable villains. That's a whole list waiting to be written and I think this performance is one that I really remember for how kind of like, um, he says something towards the beginning of the movie about just being hollow, that there's nothing to him, there's nothing in him. And the sort of curiosity around how he moves through scenes, this sort of lack of like, you're trying to, I watch the movie and I'm trying to pin down, like, is this an evil guy? Is this a psychopath? Is he even really aware of what he's doing? You know, he keeps following up with these weird questions about like, who are you? Yeah, but who are you? No, but like, think about it, dude. Who are you? Really, I'm asking you that. Like, do you see what I'm saying here? (laughs) I'm asking you, who are you? And so you don't really know if this guy's like, is he putting on a, like, what is he doing? Right. Like, is is he he just trolling the people who have summoned him here today? (laughs) Does he know what's going on? Sure. Does he have evil in his heart? Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of it. And the way the actor plays this character is just so fun for me to like, even once you kind of know what happens in the runtime of the movie, I feel like you go back and you're like, okay, at this point, what does this guy think about this scene? And is he being honest in it? Is he being straightforward? Is he telling the other people everything he knows? But then he also says these weird phrases. Right. Are there a couple phrases? Do the phrases mean anything? Or do, are they triggering something? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you notice this too, right? These like weird 
this sort of like poetic repetition of uh, I forget exactly what they are. I mean, there's a there's a couple of them. I don't know if you remember any of them. It's like I don't um, know if it's even important what the phrases are. I think the the whole point of that sort of it feels like an intentional misdirect. There's something about it leads you into this idea of the ma- manipulation and this awareness of what's going on. Yeah. Well, it just I because I start thinking this is the point where I start piecing together what's going on or my version of what's going on, which may or may not be the reality of the film. The ultimate, like, let's just, here's a little tool. I'm going to let you in on the thing nobody's supposed to say, is that if a movie's kind of ambiguous, well, it, it means it's open to interpretation, right? Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to hear that. Right. That's the worst fucking, people want to know, like, okay, but what is the the official version of what happens in the end? Movies leave things open for a reason. Sometimes they can be a bit of a riddle to solve, Sometimes there is a right answer, but mostly they want people to talk about it. So I start piecing together what I think is my version of what's going on. And I start thinking about like this sleeper cell kind of idea that there is, there's some sort of specific phrase that someone can say that will trigger something to happen or awaken something or make someone do something. We do play with the metaphysical or uh, is metaphysical the right word for this? What do you make of like the magic parts of the movie, the sort of supernatural parts? I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard because, you know, naturally I have this predisposition to assume that that's all nonsense. And I think that the movie does sort of make a case for a naturalism to, a naturalism to all of this. Um, you know, he doesn't feel like a, he's not a wizard, in my mm. opinion, he's there's there's definitely this this level of of naturalism and manipulation and I don't know. I mean, when when you get to the idea of making people think a thing, it's hard for me to believe it's fully like supernatural. Yeah, because we're talking about hypnosis here, right? It's been a while since I've talked to you about hypnosis, and I remember that being even for um, for us as very scientific minded people skeptics, if you will, uh, that hypnosis was kind of tricky. I don't know if, you, if you've, uh, since we haven't discussed hypnosis in 10 fucking years, like, hey, Michael, where are you on hypnosis? I, I mean, I think that there's definitely a place where you can, you can lull someone into divulging information that maybe they, they weren't prepared to divulge. But when uh. it comes to... When it comes to um, snap, when I snap my fingers, you're gonna wake up and think you're an actual chicken. I that you lose me in those moments a little bit. Yeah, the kind of stage hypnosis like that. So I think when you're you're talking about hypnosis, there has to be you know a, a predisposition to to divulging that information. But I also think I also think when you have a, a situation like this. It's it's less even. It's not hypnosis in the truest sense. It's this sort of. It's like a contagion of of. Uh, it's a rash of people doing this. You know, this isn't an isolated event. This isn't that video where everybody uh, pretends that the kid's invisible and he loses his mind. There's some. There's some like contagiousness uh, that is being passed along from person to person. 
So there is something like a mind virus that might be at work here. The movie tells us that there's suggestion and there's hypnosis. And it plays it, I mean, I think the most supernatural way to look at the movie is that you say a phrase or a secret code and the virus travels and people go off and kill. But that's really looking at it as the most supernatural. You know, I also felt the way you did watching it, it hit home, like, not when I was watching it, actually, but when I started thinking about, okay, what is this ending and what is this movie about? And it really started resonating with, things we see today, you know, the, um, the sort of, uh, propaganda. I mean, propaganda is something we've both been on high alert for and talked about a lot on the show, Mm -hmm. but actually for the longest time, we've, we've had this competing theory of movies don't influence behavior. And also movies are the greatest tool to implant a feeling or, Uh, idea even, Trojan horse ideas, you know, so we believe in the power of storytelling to get people to come around to something. Mm -hmm. We like that, but we don't like the idea that somebody might see this movie and then go out and commit acts of murder or something. So these are are ideas that in some sense are competing, and we've talked a lot about that. But implanting an idea, that's, I think, the theme. And then also, you know, a lot of the, the effect that just chasing down the killer sees uh, uh, or has rather on really everybody that comes in contact with this guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, we, we try to impart this on the audience too. I think the sound design is a big thing that I like about this movie. You know, there's a, it's a very bizarre watch if you haven't seen it because of the way it makes you feel and the odd choices it makes and... Just as a, a piece of filmmaking, that's really interesting to me too. It's part of why the movie feels maybe even more bizarre than it is because of this really sparse, really um, a kind of atonal. Well, I think that, I mean, I really think that that is so much of the time of what is going on in this movie. I think that, mm. I think that there's sort of this bizarreness in these performances where um, it's not super avant-garde, it's not wild. There's not a lot of there's, it's almost, you know, dogma 95 in a way where these, this, this movie seems to like not really take it like any of this is particularly super, you know, that's why I guess that's why I mean, it's not supernatural because when I think of, when I think of supernatural, I think of, you know, the, upside down naked grudge boy doing a doing a weird cat sound so i think this is very much of that time before uh, you mean that about japanese new wave in general or about uh just cure uh i mean i, I it's definitely it's it's emblematic of japanese new wave but i think really this movie to me has this tone that it's off-putting, you know? I think of, there's a lot of movies, this uh, Tale of Two Sisters sort of strikes this note for me. Some of the um, the pre-Ichi Takashi Miike stuff, it all just feels like extremely dry and almost like a, it, it feels almost like a, um, like a weird, almost a dinner theater type. There's it's, it's so procedural. I don't know. I can't really put my hand on it. I don't know if this is making a lot of sense, but I feel like 
there's the the whole performance of the movie is almost like the people in the movie don't find this super odd. Yeah, yeah. And that instead that it I I maybe this is maybe this is part of the mind fuck of the whole thing, but it just feels like the people in this movie uh, are almost gaslighting me. Obviously there's there's like some intrigue and some mystery and how are all these murders connected and who is this mystery man? But I feel like when it really comes down to it, you have this sort of, it feels otherworldly in how dry they are playing this. Uh, You know, I feel like if this were a few years later coming out of Japan, it would be extremely melodramatic. There'd be a bunch of different colored lighting. The movie that always comes to mind, and it's one we've never covered on the show, is Uzumaki. Uh, So I guess that means now we have to cover that on the show. But it just feels very, very dry, very procedural. And and there's just something about it that makes it feel more sinister. I don't know if this is making any sense. Oh, yeah. Um, but I hope that you a little bit understand what I'm I saying. I absolutely get what you're saying. And it's also interesting. I mean, that's just where it is in the timeline. You know, 97, this is a few years before Japanese horror comes to the U.S. in a big way. And I think once Japanese horror comes to the U.S. and we're getting Battle Royales and Ichi the Killers and Ringu and all of the, you know, the grudge, uh, these movies get more and more ghost story, more and more supernatural. So I think part of why I, I, I tend to go, wow, even at its most supernatural, here's what the movie's about, because that time in my mind just became so much, like I said, ghost story. So many of those movies that we started seeing in the U.S. But it's really, you know, this, to be honest, this is a lot more closer to the Seven era. This is like a couple years after that and is a total neo-noir movie and is totally grounded, even if it is about, it. well, okay, so let's talk about this ending then. We get this final scene because a lot of what we're talking about is, is it supernatural, is it not, or what is the, the mythology? Mm-hmm. So when we come up to this last scene, we see the detective. Skip this if you haven't seen the movie, guys. <laughs> so our detective has killed the so-called killer. Now he's in a diner. A woman comes over. You know, he speaks to her. She goes back. She's sort of milling about in the, the back of the frame, Another woman comes over, talks to her, and she picks up a knife, and that's where the movie ends. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of left with this thought, you know, this is very, this is very movie ending type stuff, right? This like, is she going to kill someone with a knife? You know, like people are killing people with this strange brain worm or whatever the fuck is going on throughout the rest of the movie. So I want to get your read on just what what do you think is the the physical? Write the police report for me. Like, what happens here? What is this? What are we watching? <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely think it's supposed to keep the ending ambiguous. It's supposed to make you believe that, um, I mean, you know, it's the toothpaste in the tube thing, right? Like once all the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. Once this mysterious uh, auditory signal is is out in the world, it's been blasted into space. Um, it may always be out there. It's, uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I think she's going to stab him. I think uh, he dies or somebody dies at least. Yeah, because there's kind of, there's there's like the literal, 
You know, so right away, the ending can go in one or two ways. Either the woman has the knife because she's about to murder somebody because she's got the, you know, stabby mind virus. Right. Or she's not. But let's say she is because that's the more exciting ending. It's a does the top fucking fall over type ending. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's say she is. So then my question is, is that because she talked to that woman and the signal the movie's giving us is, oh, the virus is still out there. Or is it because she talked to him and he's now giving off these, these births? And you know, what, what that really made me think of is the climax of the movie. Because when I started working it backwards this way, I thought, you know, this whole movie is kind of about our detective is, uh, it's almost like the chosen one kind of template. He's the one fucking guy who this hypnosis is not affecting. And he gets close to it and he flirts with it. And everybody else who comes in contact with this guy, the guy is able to get them to go out and kill or commit suicide or, you know, tragedy befalls them. But not our guy, not our detective. And he's losing everything in his life over this. And finally, when the jail system can't keep this guy, you know, the prosecution isn't, He's able to get his way out of whatever this like court type scenario. Finally, when every system of law and justice has failed, our protagonist decides to just shoot this guy down and end it. And that made me think, you know, maybe it did get to him. <laughs> yeah. Because it has forced him to commit murder. Something that up to this point we've thought, oh, he's so resilient to this. But maybe it is the committing of murder in this scene a scene, by the way, after he's seen the faceless man, which I just think is like the fucking coolest part of this whole mythology, is that there's some kind of like guy in photos with no face who might have been the original hypnotist who maybe passed on. I keep thinking of it like a virus, you know, like passed on this hypnotic mm -hmm. uh, urge to, to, I don't know what it is, you know, like hollowed out someone's inside their emotions and uh, giving them this urge to just force people to go off and commit murders. If by killing this guy, he didn't cross some line that made him become the vessel, right? And especially after we just saw the like, the, uh, the sort of weird origin house with this faceless man photo. So, I mean, look, I'm thinking about all that but it doesn't fucking mean anything. We don't know. That's how the movie goes. And I think that's okay here. Why not be okay in Zodiac? Well, so the thing about, uh, the thing about Zodiac is that it's a movie that doesn't have um, an ending. That is until recently when it turns out that the Zodiac killer has an IMDb account. <laughs> Can you, okay, hold on. Hold on, stop. We got to talk about the... Well, I'll, I'll give you the secret second theme in a second, but let's just talk about this because we goofed on this the whole time <laughs> coming up to the show. So uh, in, in recent history, um, in the last few months, uh, a, a team of, of hotshot gumshoes and I don't know, their cats or some shit, mm -hmm. all banded together. And finally, after how many years? 40 years? Uh, they... They solved the Zodiac case. By solved, you mean picked a random guy? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and 
And so in in all of this, they 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 got together. They uh they discovered that that buried in one of his I don't know his name is one of his ciphers. Eventually, uh, it, it turns out it like flat out says his name, and they decoded it wrong. So um, they got together this this crack shot team and. Um, By team, you mean message board. If we could replace team with message board <laughs> from now on, that would be good. The Discord that these 40 internet sleuths, <laughs> former you know, FBI fired police sergeants, whoever makes up this group. But, but none of that is important because what it actually, what it actually turned out is upon, upon naming this guy, and I don't even remember his name, but they went through and they discovered um, that this this man had an IMDb account, the uh, the Internet Movie Database for you lay people, for you first time double feature people, and he in <clears throat> he recently or before the time of his death, he died in like 2018 or some shit. Uh, he he went on IMDb and he was he was leaving shitty reviews. For movies about uh, about other serial killers, there's one um, about a Ted Bundy movie that says <laughs> Ted Bundy is totally overrated, and essentially oh is just calling god. him out for being a hack. Choice word, hack. Oh my god. Um, and so, uh, anyway, what's really nice coming on this show and 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 doing Zodiac, it 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 may it's why we did Zodiac. It's because it's. It's never a movie I want to cover, and it's because I always feel like this movie has no ending. And it can't, because it's the Zodiac case. But fortunately, we're here today, uh, now knowing that the true Zodiac killer was an IMDb troll who went to his grave being snarky about shitty made-for-TV serial killer movies. So there we are. Well, in all likelihood, the Zodiac killer, I mean, very well could be dead. Just given how long ago the crimes were, I mean, on a long, you know, this is the Zodiac Killer's a crazy case because it's a pretty prolific serial killer, especially if you believe how many crimes he said he did. Although, you know, the movie uh, talks about that as well. That at some point he stopped killing and just started reading the paper and being like, "That one, I did that one." So. He's a prolific letter writer and sometimes serial killer. Right. <laughs> but he um, he was never caught. And so automatically that's okay. So that's kind of interesting. Not a lot of serial killers who are never caught, especially if they killed 37 fucking people or whatever, even though he probably didn't. But then the thing that really gets me is when you watch the movie, you know, he's not a criminal mastermind. I mean, he did seem to avoid leaving enough clues, but he doesn't talk like like he's not a uh, terribly well educated or very poetic. And his his letters basically sound like they're written by a five year old. You know, <laughs> they're um, they're just very crude and like the just the sentence structure and stuff. I don't know. They sound very stupid. So, <laughs> you know, there is uh, there. I I always remember. The point where like he's written a bunch of letters and at some point he's just going, these letters become so blase and so cordial and he's just sort of like, hey, what's up newspaper guys? It's me, Zodiac. So uh, I did that last murder. <laughs> that was pretty good. Don't know if you guys saw that. Um, seen a lot of people with buttons out there, you know? <laughs> you got like uh, 
uh, peace buttons, black power uh, button. If you could get some Zodiac buttons, I mean, that would be great for me. I'd really love seeing people wear my button. I have a logo. I have a logo. Uh, anyways, all right. Well, uh, I got to go, so take care. And I'm just like, what the fuck are we doing, Zodiac Killer? <laughs> just fucking around about buttons. Like, this a, we've, we've, been, we've been writing each other letters too long. The menace has just dissipated. So very bizarre to look at this guy and that's what I love about his treatment in the movie too is like the murders are heinous and sometimes even scary in this movie. You know, I think the fucking basement scene is scary in this movie. But when you get too close to talking to the guy, you're kind of like, why couldn't they fucking catch this guy? Takes the sort of like godlike status away from him, you know? Well, I mean, and it's it was just a different time and and I don't know. So there's this there's this sort of people back in the 60s and 70s were dumber than people are now. But also, you know, when it came to being a murderer, you had to commit to that in those times. It wasn't this like arbitrary, I guess I'm just getting a gun and we're going to go rampage. None of this school shooting stuff. Yeah, that shit's easy now. Um, but back in the day you really had to commit, but um as time has gone on, with I think about this all the time. I think about this with not just the Zodiac Killer, but as time has gone on and as as we as a society have become more intelligent and you know stopped the Cold War or whatever the fuck we did. I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I'm not super good at history, but you start looking at it. You start looking at it under a microscope, and you lose a lot of what's scary. I think about this all the time um, when you think about if if these people who died young, right? Mm-hmm. If, um, if the 27 Club had gone on and lived to today, would Janis Joplin have been racist? Oh, yeah. Or would Jimi Hendrix have been like, anti-trans yeah you know just if you think about the generation i feel like on a long enough timeline you run out of the important stuff and you start getting into dangerous territory where maybe you're not as cool and i think i think that's that's sort of what this movie does with the zodiac it disempowers him by you know the the headline of the Zodiac is always, oh my God, he's got a cipher. And there's that weird, the image of him in like the, the like hood cloak. And that's all very scary. And especially in the time that it's going on. But you know, this movie takes place over a much longer time period and it's taking place following a character who is glued to this guy. And so, yeah, he calls up the newspaper. He can't, you can't be cool forever that it's that that's back to what I'm saying about you know this 27 club on a, if 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 you put out four albums and then fucking kill yourself odds are you're going to do better than if you put out 20 more you're talking about would nirvana still be awesome today right <laughs> or would they have ruined the mystique yeah i mean <laughs> yeah i think about that a lot i think it's i think it's the kind of thing where I don't know how even I don't know how the Zodiac Killer were he actually intelligent. I don't know how he would have maintained the the gravity of being the fucking Zodiac Killer for fifty years or fucking whatever. If there, if he's still alive at all, and if you are alive, I hope you're listening. I hope he leaves a bad review. 
<laughs> I hope he leaves a five-star iTunes review. That's what I hope. Let me too. Please leave us a review if you're still alive. Yeah, well, this is a an interesting conundrum for this movie and just something that's always been interesting about my reaction to Zodiac is there is a natural story. So what's the actual logline of this? It's based on this book, right? So Robert Graysmith is a cartoonist who likes solving puzzles. When a spree murderer hits his uh, small town of San Francisco, he helps people at the newspaper. I don't know. He he attends some daily stand-up meetings and becomes obsessed and really becomes the last person obsessed with this. What I love about this logline, which is totally unnecessary to talk about Zodiac, is there is a real low-key kind of unreliable narrator to this movie that I don't know is necessarily intentional, but does play out. Because what do we see? We see the second theme of today's show, which is, uh, I mean, there's probably like a tropey way to say this, but it's sort of like all of the victims of the Zodiac Killer who are like the indirect victims of the killer, I guess. You mentioned I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I mean, that's a, a famous recent one. Um, obviously, the, if you don't know about this, the woman who was writing the book died. Her husband, who is a, yes, Michelle McNamara, um, her husband kind of finished it up. And then there's this show, and I'll let everybody uncover all the, the fun pieces of that uh, show. But it's really great. But it's, uh, you know, some it, it partially tells the story of this woman who was obsessed with solving this case. And there is an open question of was her death as a result of her obsession in some way. So not to make it too much about that, but it falls into this, this template that I do think comes from real life, which is people become obsessed with a case and it makes them crazy. And I've seen this. I know people who've worked in reality TV shows who, uh, you know, true crime series, who know these people firsthand or are related to these people. It is a very real thing that it just consumes them. It, it is very much, you know, red thread on uh, corkboard type stuff. And so that alcoholic cop, that, that guy who pushes his wife away, you know, all of these tropes I do feel come from reality. But we see that in this movie with Graysmith. He's writing the book, quote unquote, writing the book. The book almost just seems to be like his way of being like, well, at least I did something with all that wasted life. Point is that we see in the movie, Fincher shows us in the fucking movie, the guy who's writing the book that this movie is based on becomes utterly obsessed. And even in, in a great scene with Clea Duvall towards the end, is basically like, say it's this fucking guy. And she's like, it's definitely not that guy. And he's like, yeah, but just fucking say it is. I need it. So, you know, he is, he's obsessed with the, the case. He's possessed. And it's, uh, it's how these murderers tear the lives apart of even the people trying to solve the cases. The reason I bring that up is because, all, you know, you walk away from this movie and you go, well, obviously it was Alan. You know, the call stopped after he died. It's him. Duh. I mean, everybody, case closed. But we don't even ever know that there really were calls because the whole, all the evidence we're given was written down for us on a napkin by the dude who in the movie we even see is so obsessed and just wants this, wants a, a good conclusion for his book. So even though the movie doesn't overtly say that, I think that's a really cool part of Zodiac is uh, it doesn't say, oh, 
what a twist at the end, unreliable narrator movie, but it kind of is. Well, and I think the other thing that makes the most sense about that to me is that the guy had a sudden heart attack and died. Because the one thing I know for sure about the Zodiac Killer, especially after what we were talking about with the fact that he was so social with the people investigating him, is that he would not, he, he would have had some contingency. He would have let everybody know, you fucking idiot. I got away with it and I'm the Zodiac Killer. Peace. And then, you know, die from lymphoma or whatever he had. So, so the fact that he, he didn't think he was done, he didn't think he was close to being done. And so, you know, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not really sure either he's still alive or, uh, he died suddenly of a heart attack and was played by John Carroll Lynch. Mm-hmm. I think honestly, at this point, I'm surprised somebody else hasn't just come out and been like, yo, uh, I also, upon my death, I wanted to let everybody know I was the Zodiac killer. I'm going to do that. That's what, that's my plan for when I die. I'm going to, I'm going to let everybody know that I, in fact, had been the Zodiac killer all along. <laughs> right. Deathbed confession that you're the Zodiac killer. <laughs> the time doesn't even line up. It's not important. By decades, man. There's a, there's a team of sleuths that will buy it. Plus, we know that uh, character actor Jimmy Simpson fingered John Carroll Lynch, character <laughs> actor John Carroll Lynch as the Zodiac killer. So we know. Is there any character actor, by the way, who isn't in this movie? No. I mean, every Elias Cotillas is in, literally everybody is in this movie. It's like it's Philip great. Baker Hall's in it, Chloe Savini, Brian Cox it, is in it. It's crazy. Everybody is in this movie. I definitely think of this movie as like an ensemble movie. And then when you go back, it's like, you know, three big name actors and then just a bunch of people that only you and I know by name and everybody else knows as that guy, Dick Miller. Um, But the other thing uh, that makes this really obvious, there's just so many like very obvious plays, um, like how there was that gap where uh, he, um, the, the guy goes to jail and that just, that's when the phone calls stop. That's when there's no there's no zodiac letters. Um, I think that that's obvious. Well, yeah, the the fact that he doesn't write when uh, when this guy is in jail, when Alan's in jail, is is interesting to me. Suspect. So let me anchor all this back to the the point I was trying to reach so <laughs> long ago, which is that we have this natural desire for resolution that the film Zodiac can't possibly give us. (laughs) Yes. And I think this is so interesting about serial killer movies. You know, the true crime documentaries all have this problem too. There's two types of true crime documentaries. There are ones where they find the killer at the end and ones where they don't. I always think that there's the jinx and the other ones. That's what I think. Well, they don't have to, yeah, the people in the movie don't have to solve it. I just meant by the (laughs) end of the movie. So I think this is interesting as a type of story because you should be able to tell other stories. This movie has a lot of characters with a lot of arcs. Mm -hmm. It's an expertly made movie. And yet, there is always some part of me that's like, oh, but it didn't solve with a Zodiac killer. As if it needs to fucking do that. Absolutely the same feeling. 100% the same feeling. And so I just think that, you know, we have seen so many different stories told so many different ways on Double Feature. And isn't it interesting that the find out who the murderer kind of uh, blueprint for a movie 
it's almost as if you can't do it satisfyingly unless you really do find out who the murderer is. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of story, it's why uh, there aren't a lot of good Jack the Ripper movies. Don't all fucking Patreon us from hell. I know about <laughs> from hell. We've done it on the show. But, you know, there's, there's just a natural arc. You want to find out who the killer is, and if you don't, it doesn't matter what other character work you pay off in the movie. There's just something people go to see mysteries and they want to find out the answer to the fucking mystery at the end. I mean, I just, uh, it's funny because I also think I would feel super betrayed if they uh, just made it up. I, I want to know the actual killer. There's no, there's no way they can win. They cannot win. Good try, David Fincher. For Fincher, this is also a fun one because this is the first digital and, you know, I think he's had a really interesting career as somebody who almost exclusively used different cinematographers for every movie up till right about the the digital part of his, you know, uh, Jeff, is it Cronenworth? I don't exactly remember. I don't have it in front of me. Cronenworth, I think might be his name. But he's, he started with this guy on the social network and they've done a bunch of movies together after that. He was an early, Fincher was an early uh, advocate of digital back when these these cameras, and this one was actually shot a, a little bit on film, little on digital because the digital couldn't do the high speed. But I thought it was especially funny to mention here because while this was the first uncompressed digital they caught, the first thing that basically shot raw, shot something that wouldn't put ugly artifacts all over your movie, this was also the, the same year, just to put a flag in this for double feature, that the iPhone can now shoot uncompressed ProRes video. So it's just kind of funny how far um, we've come on a lot of this. Okay, let's get the fuck out of here. Okay, uh, what is that? We have a website. That's doublefeature.fm. Um, there's a Patreon, which we already went on at nauseum. It's patreon.com forward slash doublefeature. Just... Just go to the Patreon. <laughs> okay. Michael's tired and uh, needs a nap. <laughs> uh, I wore him out with all my dark wave jokes, I think. Do those count as jokes? I'm not sure there were any jokes in the show. <laughs> I'm not sure I provided, provided anything. Um, it's patreon.com forward slash double feature. Executive yeah. producers, that's who I was going to thank. I Yes, I felt like I was going to thank someone here. It's Charles Crawford, Ben Acker, Brad Parker, and Yoakam Vernon. So thanks, guys. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. All right. Well, thanks to you guys or in spite of you, despite what you want. I don't know how we're going to frame this, but we do have another show next week. We are going to do uh, a movie called Summer of 84, which is a movie that I've wanted to see for a long time. And a Takashi Miike movie called As the Gods Will, which mm -hmm. was the closest thing I could get. I looked up a list of... <laughs> things to watch after you finish watching Squid Game and then saw that one of them was a Takashi Miike movie. And so next week on Double Feature, we are bringing you the closest thing I could find to Squid Game. <laughs> Is that why that's popping back up? That's good because I had a, a Miike itch after uh, doing this show today. So that's good that we can check that out now. There's an ointment for that. <laughs> Ew. Watch more fucking film. Bye. We got through the whole episode. I didn't say hey pig once. Hey pig. Hey pig, piggy pig, pig, pig.